This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. Well, my guest today, Hollywood historian, researcher, writer, and archivist Barbara Hall, is a graduate of the USC School of Cinematic Arts and the University of Iowa. She was an archivist and oral historian at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences for more than 20 years. She's also worked as an archivist for Warner Brothers, the Writers Guild Foundation, and the Art Directors Guild. Barbara and my once and future StoryBeat guest, Rocky Lang, have recently collaborated on writing and publishing one of the most beautiful books on Hollywood I've ever seen. It's called Letters from Hollywood, and we'll discuss much more about it shortly. So for those reasons and many more, I'm truly delighted to welcome my first film archivist and historian to StoryBeat, Barbara Hall. Barbara, I'm so glad you could join me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you. Oh, me too. I'm so glad you could. Okay, so let's start with your background. Um, what was it that led you to pursue the life of being a historian and archivist in the first place? Well, when I was a student at USC, I started taking some cinema history courses. Um, I had always liked movies. I'd grown up watching movies with my family, um, old movies on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember having quite uh, being quite... Um, blown away by the movie um, That's Entertainment, which came out when I think I was about 12 or 13 years old, and seeing, you know, all this nostalgia for old movies, getting a chance to see the clips from the old films that I hadn't seen before, and that made me a movie fan, Mm -hmm. and then when I got to USC, I, I wasn't it didn't even occur to me that I might study that as a, as, you know, and move toward in that area, in that direction as a career, but... What were you there to study? What did you start, think you were going to do? Um, I was a French major. A French major. Actually. Okay. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I liked studying French, and uh, so I was taking those classes. And then I just started, I took um, the introductory film studies course and really, uh, really loved it. And then I started taking, so I started taking some other film history courses. And um, the the professor who I really gravitated to there and who had a huge influence on me was, um, it was named Rick Jewell. And he um, he's retired now, but um, we're still very close. And he um, he's a fantastic film history professor. And I took several of his courses. And after having done that, I decided to change my major over to uh, cinema studies. I see. This is this is as an undergraduate or graduate? Yes, as an undergraduate, undergraduate. at USC. Got mm-hmm. it. And so you went from French to cinema and cinema history. Yes. All right, that's an interesting transition. Have you been able to use your your learning about your knowledge about French and and France and all that in terms of what you've done? Not so much because I really am uh, focused on American cinema, um, and so I haven't really um, and I haven't 
honestly cultivated my, continued to cultivate my French skills since I was in college. Mm -hmm. So I'm just as rusty as everyone else when I go to France. <laughs> my uh, my French is not so great now, but oh. um, but uh, I you know I did get the deg I got a, a degree in both actually I did get the degree in French wow. and um, and the degree in uh, cinema um, from the what was then called the USC School of Cinema Television. Yes, and um, so that was a great experience. I, I saw so many movies and you know learned so much. Just and then my senior year, uh, I had an opportunity to do, um, I guess it was an internship at the American Film Institute Library. Right. So I did that, and uh, that eventually turned into a, a small part-time job, work-study type job, working at that library. So that was really my first experience having, uh, having the chance to work at a library. Got it. And uh, interestingly enough, um, the, one of the people I was working with there was uh, Howard Prouty. And Howard later came to work at the Academy. We worked together for many years and are good friends. And he also um, got to know Rocky Lang over at the AFI. And eventually Ro Howard was the person who sort of uh, started, uh, instigated the idea for our book oh, by sending right? Rocky um, a letter that he came across from uh, Rocky's dad that Got was it. written in 1939. Got it. Well, so you're, you're, that's good. You're, you've leapt ahead into, into my questions a little bit. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, and by the way, I am a fellow Trojan. I graduated from USC in the theater department. So, oh, great. So it's I, a good theater department, it's for sure. It's a very good theater yeah. school. Absolutely. No, it, it, was, it was a great experience. Um, so uh, as I said, I, um, I, I learned so much. I had this opportunity to have a job at the AFI, and then not long after I graduated, uh, I heard about a job that was um, coming available at the Margaret Herrick Library, which is the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Mm -hmm. So I um, went and applied for that job and was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to work with Sam Gill, who was their special collections archivist at the time. And um, the staff was, it was a much smaller operation then than it is now. This was in 1983. This is when and, it was on Wilshire um, it was Boulevard, a much right? smaller staff. This is when it was on and Wilshire. And so I really got an opportunity almost right away as this young student just out of college <laughs> to really get some hands-on experience working with the collections there at the Academy. And that's really when I realized that this was the career path that I wanted to take. Right, right, right. This was when the Academy was on, I mean, when the library was in the Academy building on Wilshire, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, but that uh, it was also around the time when they had really started to um, to increase the size of their collections and had gotten some very important uh, donations. So, right. right around the time that I started there, they um, they were given the Motion Picture uh, Association of America Production Code Administration files, which was a huge collection mm. um, of over twenty thousand files that um that had been donated so most of that was stored in a storage unit storage facility across the street so i actually spent a fair amount of my time over there across oh. the street working with the work, working with the collection um i was the first person to sit down and make a list of all the files that were in the collection and of course being 1983 i did that by writing my all the hand. names down on a like a yellow pad yeah. and, and then taking them back to the library and typing the list up on a typewriter. So w were you always, going way back even before you found yourself at USC, um, were you always a big reader of history? 
I did really like history. I, um, I, I liked studying that in school, and I did like reading it. I came from a family. My, my father was someone who was always reading a, reading a book. That's how I always remember him. Um, so I think, uh, I think it was just in my genes. And, um, you know, I also was always interested in my family's history and hearing about what, you know, uh, what had come before in my family. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there is, there, uh, there's always been something that has fascinated me about looking at the past. Were, were there any particular historians that you uh, admired then or continue to admire now, especially in the world of film? Or did you, are you sort of a, at the frontier edge of it? Oh no, I'm not at the edge of at frontier edge of it at all. I mean, there's there's been so many important um, film historians who have come, who have uh, paved the way for the work that's being done now. So, so um, for instance, who? you know, people like, um, oh, that's uh, well, D- David Bordwell, oh, David um, Bordwell. Who's a very important professor who teaches in uni- at the University of Wisconsin. Okay, so 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 Barbara, just so you're aware of this little fact, I spent my first three years in college at the University of Wisconsin, and I was a student of David Bordwell's. Oh wow! Well, I've never. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever met him in person, but I definitely admire his work. Yeah. Um, and uh, also people like uh, Kevin Brownlow. Um, you know, uh, all of the. You know, there, there's been so many great historians. Um, and, and then I had an opportunity, you know, to eventually meet a lot of these people and work with them as well. And so everyone that I met when I was working as an archivist, um, all these different historians that I had a chance to, to work with really had an influence on mm-hmm. me as well. What, what would you say are your, uh, do you have a favorite Hollywood-centric book that has always been an inspiration for you? Is there, you know, one or one author that really inspires you? Aside from Boardwell, um, obviously. Hmm, that's a good question. I'm glancing over at my bookshelves here. <laughs> um, I, I do really admire uh, Kevin Brownlow's work mm-hmm. um, because he did go back and interview so many people who worked, in particular, in the silent period right. to um, to get their first, you know, their their own first person recollections, uh, and to put the history together that way, which is something that I also ended up doing. Uh, during my career, so I, I really do, um, I really do admire him as 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 one of the film historians who mm-hmm. has really had a huge impact. All right, so I'm curious about, uh, and I have a funny feeling I know what you're going to say, but let's hear it anyway. That when you um, are doing your work, it's probably fairly patient. It requires a lot of patience, and it's fairly tedious work. Am I correct? I don't. I don't consider it tedious, so how but do, it is. You know, it does take a long. Uh, you do have to have a lot of patience, patience because sometimes you're going through a lot of material looking for just the right thing, right. and you know there's a lot of other stuff you have to look through. But on the other hand, sometimes that's when you find the most wonderful, unexpected things when you're looking for one thing and you come across something else. Right. So to me, it's exciting. It, um, but uh, it does take a lot of patience. It's a little bit like a kind of a treasure hunt all the time, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, and that's what I enjoyed when I was working at the Academy um, in the Special Collections Department and having a chance to work with um, film, film historians, scholars, film students, biographers, um, because you're sort of helping, you're kind of their guide on their treasure hunt. Mm-hmm. And you have a chance to you know, to point them in a certain direction or bring something out that they hadn't thought about looking, you know, that, that they didn't know was there. 
and um, sometimes it can be really exciting when you find something that 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 one thing you know that, that someone's been looking for. How important is it to the life of a uh, an archivist and a historian? How important is being a good writer if you're not planning to be a published writer? Is it super important? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've I've always loved writing, and and so I was you know very um, and, and but never had had a chance to do a book or had really had had a, an idea about doing a book. So right. I was very fortunate that. Uh, Rocky reached out to me, and we ended up collaborating on this because it um, it's my first book. Got it. Um, but, you know, I don't know that, I mean, in some ways it's important um, to be a good writer when you're an archivist just because you do often have to write people emails or mm-hmm. letters explaining, um, you know, what materials you have. And also you have to promote your collection. So there there's a certain amount of uh, writing involved in writing descriptions of the collections mm-hmm. and knowing what things are important and how to draw those things out. Um, sometimes archivists work on exhibits, so there might be writing involved with that as well. Um, but, you know, and, and a, a lot of the work that archivists do not, is not necessarily um, related to writing. Well, a, lot of, you know, a lot of it is it's organizing and... Um, it, it, you know, um, describing things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do have to be, my, for instance, my husband is, a, is an archivist at the Academy's library, and he has worked there for almost 40 years. Wow. And what he does is he goes through the collections that the Academy has, and he describes them. Um, he, he makes, uh, he inventories them, or that creates the finding aids. And in the course of that, he describes what's in each, in each folder, in each collection. Right. So there does you do need to have a, a certain amount of skill to be good at doing that, you know, identifying what the important things are and figuring out how to describe them in a way that will that will um m- you know, make them accessible to uh to researchers it, or, or help researchers recognize that this is a particular folder of material that they want to look at. It's being a clear communicator one way or another. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. So you, you, we bring up the book, so we're now just going to dive in and, and talk about the book. Um, okay. All right. So Rocky co- contacts you. You didn't contact Rocky, correct? Uh, right. Rocky heard about, um, heard about me from Howard Prouty, who I mentioned earlier, right. who was um, a mutual friend of ours who works at the Academy. Okay. So were you, aside from looking at all sorts of different things in an archive, especially the Hollywood archives, um, were you someone who um, knew and, and loved letters to begin with? Was were letters something that were important to you? Actually, actually, they were. Um, you know, in all those years working at the Academy Library and getting an opportunity to familiarize myself with all of the collections that they have there, and you know, they have, you know, that we used a lot of different libraries um, to do our research for this. But the Academy really is the crown jewel of, of, um, of film research libraries. And um, in having the opportunity to work with that material over the years, I had seen a tremendous number of letters that were in the collections. Mm-hmm. And I just was always drawn to them. I, there's something about, I think I'm really, you know, I mean, because there's all different kinds of documentation in the archives. But there's something about the personal nature of a letter and the fact that it is from one particular person's point of view that always interested me. And, um, you know, even with my family, you know, I've always been interested in if I come across a cache of old letters that my 
my grandfather wrote or something like that. I've always been fascinated by those. So I think there is something special about letters that always appealed to me. I, I so agree. So that was why I was really excited when Rocky contacted me about this project, because I thought it was a great idea. Well, I agree. I, I think there's something very special about letters in general that we are tending to lose in our current society. Um, are you an inveterate letter writer? Do you still write letters to people? I do not um, write very many letters anymore, although I, I'm one of those uh, people whose uh, emails, I think, read more like letters. Like, right. I don't write, like, really short, little cryptic emails. <laughs> My emails <laughs> tend to have, like, you know, paragraphs and things like that. Um, so I think I am I'm continuing that tradition a little bit, but I do not put pen to paper or put a put paper in a typewriter and still write letters. And, and, and clearly in this book, you focused... Um, There are two, I think there are two, there may be more than two, but I think the two big categories of letter writing that people think about are personal letters and business letters. And Uh uh, these are mostly personal letters, but in some ways they're in business letters, but they're very personal. Um, And I found that mixture very interesting. Yes, I think both Rocky and I felt that um, that was something we wanted to capture because we'd noticed that that, you know, and I don't know, I suspect that it's much more common in Hollywood, in the Hollywood film industry, um, for personal and professional matters to kind of overlap. Um, so you do sure. see that in a lot of our letters that the people, you know, the people, um, the person writing the letter is writing to a friend who also happens to be someone they're working with on a picture. Right. I, I, there, there are many of those in this book. I mean, uh-huh. and, and the way that you put that together is, uh, I think, really wonderful to see. Um, would you say, I want to just talk about today for just a half a beat, and that is, do you think that there will become a day when books are written about the history of emailing and tweeting? Hmm. Um. I do think that I think it's inevitable that there'll be um, that there'll be books written about it, um, but it won't. I don't know if it'll be a celebration of letter writing the way our book is, mm-hmm. or if it'll be more of a critique of of what happened um, during this time. It'll be interesting to see. So, um, but uh, I do think it's it's too bad that we are there's something being lost. I agree. Um, uh, you know that uh, it's not just the it's not just the formats you know not just the fact that it's electronic but it's also just the the way the 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 way we communicate with each other it, it's in small bursts you know you're not sitting down and thinking about an overall letter that you want to write uh, to someone to communicate a bunch of different ideas mm-hmm. everything kind of comes in small pieces in, in now um, the other problem of course is going to be archiving this material I mean um, Digital archivists and and um, and other people who work in the archives field are are trying to figure out how to how to archive all this material. Um, born digital files, you know, they're having to see if they can save these onto different servers and um, and uh, and how we can make those last um, because. Otherwise, you know, a whole generation of communication is going to be lost. Not just from not just about Hollywood, but every everything, everything industry. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very challenging. Um, in some ways, um, it's funny. It's the opposite of what people think. But in some ways, it's easier to archive a piece of paper than it is to archive um, a digital Wh- file. Why is that? 
Well, because digital files can get corrupted. Um, you might save them into a certain format, and that format later becomes obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, or you know the or you don't have you know you save it on say you just you archived all your emails in the '90s onto um, floppy disks. Then when you go to give them to a library and say all my emails are on here, they may not have a machine that can read a floppy I disk. Know. So then they have to figure out how to transfer that material onto some kind of format that they can read. I have I um, have I have floppy. Just a lot of different. Hmm? I was going to say, I have floppy disks going all the way back into the mid-1980s, and I can't read any of them anymore. Right, exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot of challenges with that. Whereas if you have a, a letter <laughs> and you put it in, uh, it, gets to, it makes its way to an archive and it gets placed in an acid-free folder and in a box and in a improper environment for storing materials like that, mm-hmm. it can last uh, 100 years. Or more. Well, well, we we've they've certainly found documents that are hundreds of years old, right? I mean, books. oh, absolutely. So yeah. So that's and with sure. the film industry, you know, we're only talking. Um, we're a relatively young industry. We're only talking about um, around a, um, well now about 125 years right. of history that we have. Right. And, and and really, the bulk of it is of a hundred years, 110. The the, the right, very very early yeah. stuff is is there there wasn't that much going on compared to what started to happen in the 1920s, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, well, it was pretty it was pretty uh, active in the teens here in Hollywood too, mm-hmm. um, and also in other countries as well. But yeah, the 1920s is really when Hollywood kind of really took off. Yes, um, indeed. So, all right, about how long did it take you to? pull all the letters that you wanted to use together? What what was the length of time overall? Um, well, um, Rocky and I first met about uh, just about three years ago um, and started talking about the idea and then did our book proposal. Um, and um, Rocky's agent was able to sell the, the book proposal pretty quickly to Abrams Books, which was turned out to be very, very uh, fortunate for us because they, they were terrific, and I think they did a beautiful job mm-hmm. um, on the book. So that was um, in early uh, 2017, and then I would say the research process probably went on for about a year um, or so. Um, I started uh, spending time at the Academy Library, um, and but also did research at other libraries here in, in Southern California, um, Rocky was uh, also doing some research and, in particular, looking for uh, letters from private collections and contacting friends of his and other people that he knows in the industry sure. to see if we could find some letters that way as well. So that that was sort of an intensive period of maybe about a, a year or so. And then, of course, we um, had to start getting the permissions, which Rocky pretty much handled, and um, and then writing uh, about each letter figuring out what we were going to, well, selecting the letters from the large number that we accumulated. What, what what was the total number that you accumulated before you started paring it down? I don't have a, to, I don't, I never counted the total, but I would say we probably, I mean, I, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of things I looked at. I didn't get photocopies of everything or take pictures of every single thing that I found, mm-hmm. that, that I saw. Um, but um in terms of getting actual copies, things that, that were under consideration, I would say probably 500. Wow. Five, maybe. And, yeah. h- and how many made and the cut? And then we narrowed it down to the, the 135, 137 that are in the book. And how many do you, do you uh, think about that you just wish that you had room for? How many were of those? Huh. 
There were some, every so often I'll remember one that, uh, that I really liked that I wish we could have gotten in, mm-hmm. but, um, but, um, so, you know, that, that would have been nice, but I do think that, um, Abrams made it, you know, we, the, the compromise that we came to on the number of letters, uh, has worked out pretty well. I think it feels like a, it feels um, like a hefty number. Oh, oh well, I'm, <laughs> um, without I, the book becoming just too uh, overwhelming. All right, so I'm I'm holding the book in my hand as we talk, and it's a a beautifully done oversized hardback coffee table book, and uh, it, it, the pages are are beautiful. It's about 350 plus pages, and it it it's it's a hefty book. It's not if you put another hundred pages in here, it'd probably be too heavy. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a uh, and the the style and the way that it's put together, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, but uh, it's uh, exquisitely assembled. The assembly of the book is as impressive as everything else because that's what keeps you compelled to keep forging forward as you're looking. It's not just the letters themselves, which are very interesting uh, to, to read, but there's also lots of photographs in here, and the way that you've laid the book out is fantastic. Were you involved in the layout of the book, or did somebody else do that? Um, no, they, uh, Abrams assigned a designer, uh, to the book, and I, I think he did, um, a tremendous job. Tremendous. And, um, our editor, I think, also had some influence on that. But we also, we were seeing some early layouts, and, um, and did have, did, were able to give some, uh, some input. I mean, for me, the most important thing about the, um, uh, about the design of the book uh, well, there were a couple of things. I mean, early on, Rocky and I uh, agreed that we really wanted to do a book that reproduced the letters. So we didn't. We we did think that the material we were finding was really interesting, mm-hmm. but it's also important to us for people to see the letters. I agree. Yeah, it, and that was important to me as someone who's worked in archives because I I felt like. Um, other than the historians and students who have an opportunity to go to archives and study these, you know, see these kinds of materials in person, I, I thought that there were a lot of people who didn't realize how much amazing material had been saved um, from the history of Hollywood, right. and that these that these kinds of letters existed. So I really liked the idea of the book as a way to to give people uh, sort of a look at what. Uh, you know what it's like to to look at materials in an archive. I I, I agree with one of the really great assets of this book is that you are looking at the actual letters. Uh, uh, um, you know, well, of course, you're not looking at the the true in real life letter, but you're looking at reproductions of the real letters. So you're seeing handwriting, you're seeing notes, um, you're seeing coffee stains, you're seeing all kinds of things on these letters that make mm-hmm. them come to life. It, it, it feels much more real this way. Um, all right, so. What was the process like for you and Rocky to decide, okay, we've got 500-plus letters, we need 135. What was that process like? How did you make those decisions? Well, from the very beginning, we had agreed um, that the way to arrange the letters in the book was to put them in chronological order. Because I, even though I knew that it was, to some extent, going to be about each individual letter, and each one was going to be about that person who wrote the letter... We really wanted to see if we could create some kind of a historical timeline of Hollywood in a way, and we, you know, we knew it wouldn't cover every single. It's not a. It's not a history of film. Right. It's not meant to be a, a book that's a history of the entire film industry. Definitely but we not. wanted to see if we could kind of 
find letters that touched on a lot of important issues and a lot of important films that were made during that time that we were covering mm-hmm. from the 1920s to the 1970s. So we put everything in chronological order and then just started going through and trying to see which letters worked well together and which ones had something to say about something that was going on in the industry uh, at that particular time. I, I think that that's, the way you just said that is quite accurate and, and, uh, and well-considered, um, th- that this is not an, a history of Hollywood book. This is a, this is a captures the flavor of the times as, as, thing moved, as things moved on. Um, right. The, the one and of, also, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there was a, you know, we tried to balance. Um, I think we, we always had a lot of different things in our minds. I mean, I wanted to, we wanted to have, obviously, you know, and it was important to have a lot of recognizable names in the book, people that would be recognizable to movie fans and film historians. But we also wanted to have um, people from a lot of different crafts. And not just movie stars and not just directors and and writers, but also cinematographers and art directors and agents and producers. So that was one consideration, is trying to get a variety of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was interested in getting people at different stages in their careers. So I really liked, like, for instance, the letter from Rocky's dad, Jennings Lang, yeah. was written when he was 24 years old and trying to break into the business. Right. And then we have other letters that are written when people are toward the ends of their careers. So I, I kind of looked for that. And I looked, as I said earlier, I looked for um, letters that had kind of an interesting point of view on some significant aspect of, of, film, of, of the film industry or of film history. Um, for instance, uh, the letter from Ronald Coleman um, oh, that's from a, 1928, that's where a he says he doesn't want to perform in front of a microphone yeah. because he thinks that... Um, that the the sound the sound business I think is he calls it is a uh, is a kind of a passing fad. Um, <laughs> I thought that was a very interesting um, way to talk about the transition to sound in Hollywood. I I think that that was that's one of the more fascinating letters in the book is that here you've got a a man who actually had a beautiful voice thinking mm-hmm. that sound was not going to uh, work, uh, and that just shows you that that people just don't understand how technology keeps forging ahead. Um, mm-hmm. And we've already talked yeah, about that. E- exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that was an example also of a letter speaking of the, of what the letters looked like. I mean, that's probably the, the, one of the harder letters to read in the book. It's some kind of, um, some kind of ancient photo stat or something. Um, but it was the only, copy of that letter that I was able to find um, in in the Samuel Goldwyn collection, which is where it's located. Um, I tried to to talk to the archive people there, the archivists there, about finding the original, and I was we were not able to locate it, so we decided to forge ahead using that photostat, because I thought it was such an interesting letter. And, you know, it, it kind of shows a little bit of a reality of what it's like to do research in archives also, which is that sometimes you are looking at photostats, photocopies, carbons. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't always find the uh, the pristine, beautiful original. Right. Well, the one that I'm looking at it right now, the letter, and it's mm-hmm. it has a sepia tone quality to it. It definitely looks like a photostat. And uh, it's this line that just is, uh, yeah, it's, it's in retrospect kind of hilarious when he says, Ronald Coleman says, with reference to the additional clause of the contract, I would rather not sign this 
at any rate, just at present, except as a scientific achievement, I'm not sympathetic to this, quote, sound, closed quote, business. That's hilarious. You know, that <laughs> that's the way he thought. Yeah. No, I really, I really thought that was great when I came across it. I, um, because it confirms something that historians have written about, but also that's, you know, entrenched in popular culture, for instance, in the movie Singing in the Rain, that there were a lot of, right. you know, there were a lot of actors and, and other creative people who were afraid that, you know, that sound was going to be um, a negative development. For well, for some of them, it was a negative. Art. For some of them, it was a negative development mm-hmm. because they didn't have good voices, but they looked a certain way. So, yeah, that was important for some of the... It was fear. Of course, it's always fear, isn't it? But, uh, uh, yeah, that I think that the, the, the fact that this man who was a very good-looking star and also had a beautiful voice was afraid of sound. I think that's kind of amusing. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So we, you talked about clearances a little bit earlier. How, did you have to clear every single one of these letters? Um, well, some of them um, were in the, uh, are in the public domain okay. um, because um, according to the copyright laws, um, after a certain uh, amount of time has passed, in the case of, um, of unpublished Material. It's uh, the life of the author plus seventy years. Right. So um, anything was written by someone who died before nineteen forty-nine would be in the public domain. Got it. So we did not have to clear those, but there's only a handful of those in the book, and everything else um, we did make every attempt to clear. Mm -hmm. Um, And Rocky, I think, um, did a remarkable job of tracking down the family members and the states of, of the people whose, whose letters are included in the book. And uh, as he can tell you when, you when you talk with him, you know, this led to some wonderful friendships and, um, and wonderful discoveries about, about the families of the people you know, who, who uh, were these you know, titans in Hollywood. Well, I see uh, online that, um, uh, that, that uh, Rocky and I guess you too recently were interacting with um, Bella Lugosi Jr. and and Sarah Karloff and and so uh, just that fam those two families alone are enough to you know uh, raise the roof for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. It was it was great. We were in out in Flint Ridge um, here in California um, last weekend, and um, Mr. Lugosi came and uh, and read his father's letter. Wow. Um, to the crowd and answered questions about his dad. It was it was um, quite a great evening. I, I imagine it was. Um, all right. So, uh, would you say um, there were criterion for letters that you knew were not going in the book? Was were there I assume there was criterion. You've already said so for why a, a letter might go in the book. But were there things that you definitely said we're not putting anything like that in the book? Um, well, we weren't looking for dirt. Okay. necessarily and we weren't looking for scandal i mean if we found you know something interesting um that touched on something scandalous that might have been okay but we weren't going to put in anything scandalous just for scandal's sake and and in that sense you know for one thing you know it might have been uh, you know we, we do need to get the permission from the, the letter writer's family so you know in some cases um they probably wouldn't have wanted letters like that to be in the book, but, um, but also that just wasn't the kind of book that we were trying to do. We really wanted to try and capture what 
the relationships were like in Hollywood and what it was like to work in Hollywood and live here Mm -hmm. and not necessarily focus on the scandals. And even when we do have something in the book that's related to something scandalous, for instance, well, it's not really scandalous, it's more sad, but the the, uh, telegram about Francis Farmer, again, I think it's just a sort of an interesting, unusual take on what happened to her. And Mm -hmm. it's not so much about the sort of um, lurid side of of uh, her problems yes, and her because with mental health. she certainly had big problems and no it's it is more it is kind of a sad um uh telegram as you say mm-hmm. uh and more so than uh, a takedown of her or a put down of her or anything like that it's just a, it's just a sad moment um but i think it's an important moment because uh that sort of thing was m- more or less swept under the rug in the old hollywood Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, her her arrest um, and everything that happened to her around the time this telegram was written was was you know covered um, extensively in the in the press, um, and her picture was in the paper mm-hmm. and jail and everything. And then she was you know it covered her institutionalizing being institutionalized at a mental facility and everything. So it really was splashed across the the paper. But um, you know, and then like most things in Hollywood, it died down and people forgot about her. Of course, <laughs> of course. But, um, Would but you... yeah, it was, it, it, I thought it was interesting to kind of get a sense of, of how her friends in Hollywood and, and her colleagues were, were hoping to help her. Well, I, I'm not sure that uh, there's a good answer for what I'm about to ask you, but nevertheless, I, I'm curious if you think there are common themes throughout this book. One of the things I've always liked about studying um, film history is that... Um, you can is that the industry has evolved in a in a lot of ways, but also has stayed the same. And I feel like there are a lot of letters in here that show that the concerns that people had about making films, the issue of you know sort of art versus commerce yes. and um, money and image, um, that a lot of these um, a lot of these uh, concerns have stayed the same over the last hundred years. Um, so, you know, maybe that's sort of a theme that continues through the book. Um, I, uh, otherwise, I, I, I did feel like we tried to really ca- kind of cast a wide net. We weren't really necessarily looking for a, a theme that would run through the book. Um, it's certainly something I thought about at the beginning and wondered if there was, and I sort of wondered if there was a way I could do that. Um, but in the end, I, I felt like that would be too difficult mm-hmm. and you know, would maybe keep, you know, might end us, might result in our, you know, leaving out some letters that that didn't fit in with that theme, if you know what I mean. I do. So I decided, we decided to just kind of make it a broader look at Hollywood. All right. Um, so, so the, but I do really like little connections that you see between some of the letters. You I, know, that, I you think know, so. You see these different letters related to Hedda Hopper, for instance, that run through the book, right. or, you know... Um, you have a letter from Alan Ladd, and then a few pages later, you have a letter from Sal Minio, and then there's a picture of Sal Minio from Rebel Without a Cause, and he has a picture of Alan Ladd in his locker. You know, little things, little things like that. Mm-hmm. We kind of, um, I kind of get some joy out of. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the pictures for a moment. This book is full of not just the um, reproductions of 
actual letters, but you've got lots of incredible photos in here, some of which I've never seen before, and I've seen a lot of Hollywood pictures. Uh, mm. wh- where did you get all these pictures? Did these come out of uh, the uh, Academy as well? Um, some of them did, and some of them were photos that I was familiar with from having from my time there, but also they have just an incredible photo archive that is working really hard to make their materials accessible. Um, they have a really good um, digital photo archive now where you can look at their materi- a lot of their materials and also just going through the photo files there. So some of them were from there, but we, we used a lot of different sources. It was, it was interesting, actually. We, um, um, we weren't always sure how much we were going to use photos in the book. Our, um, our editor felt that the letters alone would kind of, you know, would, would be able to carry most, most of the, you know, sort of graphic design for the book. But then kind of late in the process, they came back to us and said, you know, we really feel like we should put some photos, (laughs) integrate some photos into the book as well. So we had to kind of start doing the photo research a little bit toward the end of the process. Um, And uh, and so we went to the Academy. Um, We also used some, um, you know, photo archives like Getty and um, PhotoFest and um, just went on and explored their archives. And I think we both had really specific ideas about the about the photos in that we really wanted them to relate to the letters. Right. We didn't throw any put any photos in that was purely just for visual. I, I you know t- totally visual true. Visual candy. <laughs> we really totally wanted true. them to relate to the letters. I, I totally um, true. Yeah, these, the, all, all of the photos in here relate to the letters. It's all it's all tied together. I'm, I'm looking at one of my favorite pictures in the book, which is attached to one of my favorite letters in the book. And it's this incredible picture of John Houston sitting on the edge of a, of a chair, on the arm of a chair, looking over, I guess, script pages for Moby Dick with uh, Ray Bradbury, who's mm-hmm. absolutely, from, from my money, is you know, one of the greatest writers who's ever lived. And to read his letter to Ray Bradbury's letter to John Houston and to see Ray Bradbury's sort of insecurity about the whole thing is amazing. Mm-hmm. And this is one of our greatest writers ever. Yes, but he he um as you probably know um if you've you know because he's he wrote a lot about this in yes. in I think his uh, his own work subsequently. Yes. You know, he admired Houston so much, but then it turned out to be a very sort of contentious um, fractious yeah. <laughs> relationship yes. um as they worked on that. Well, you know, John Houston was never known as the easiest person to work with. So right. uh, that that that's right. no surprise, and I would think that I, I met for had the good fortune to meet Radbury, Ray Bradbury more than once, and uh, he was just a very sweet, gentle person. So if he was butting heads with this uh, this cantankerous guy, it probably didn't work out so well. Uh, right? Um, yeah. No. It, it was. Yeah. Houston was definitely bigger than life. Oh, definitely. But yeah, I loved. Um, that was an example of one where it was pretty. It was hard to choose which letter to use because there were a num- there's a number of mm-hmm. letters from Ray Bradbury to Houston in in that collection at the Academy. Right. And, you know, that was one of the things we decided early on was that we would only have one letter per, pretty much just have one letter per person in the book. Um, that way we would be able to get more voices, um, a wider range of perspective, um, because otherwise you know, gosh, there's, you know, you could put in four or five different letters from Ray Bradbury and sort of trace that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but we decided that we really wanted to just try and pick one that to represent. 
So um, that was challenging (laughs) sometimes, especially with people like Ray Bradbury or Houston himself. There's many, many fantastic letters written by him um, in different collections. But we decided to just focus in on one. Well, perhaps this will be a gigantic smash hit, which I wish for you, and you'll be able to do a second book. Maybe so. (laughs) You know, we've had a lot of people ask us about that, but... um, uh, we hadn't. We haven't really given it much thought. Yeah, well, but, it's, it's, um, we're just thrilled that people are responding so well to it, this. Sure, to this book. sure. We uh, are kind of, you know, amazed that um, it's getting the attention that it is. I'm I'm delighted that you also included a number of letters in here that are about censorship, and the way mm-hmm. that that went down in the history of Hollywood and the Breen office and Hayes office and so on, and that uh, that you um, show. I'm glad that you show that in here because I think people need to be reminded of that, that that was a, not a particularly happy part of the history of Hollywood, that, that there was so much censorship at one time. Uh, yeah, that's true. And uh, as I mentioned when we first started talking a while ago, I was first introduced to the Production Code Administration collection uh, when I worked at the Academy um, right out of college. So I was actually one of the very first people to start going through those files right. when they came to the library. Um, so I've always been fascinated with that topic, and um, so it was very important to me to get several letters related to that into the book. I mean, you could do five books with just the letters that are in that collection. I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I'm sure. Um, so it was really hard to just, <laughs> to just choose a few, um, but we definitely did want to make that a, a part of it because it's such an import- important part of the fabric of the history of Hollywood. All right, what's, the what's... movies that were made would not would not be the same if, if the production code had not been part of the equation. I, I think that's right. And I think they then what we then came to was a reaction to that code. And so, yes, the code is an important part of the history, and so that's why I'm glad you included those in here and didn't, mm-hmm. didn't, it didn't uh, leave them out. Um, w- w- do you have a favorite letter from this book? Is there one, one that just is like, this is my favorite letter? Um, you know... Th- I um you know we've been working on this project for so long it you know they all are a little bit like my children yes, <laughs> to sure. some extent but you know um so there's a lot of them for, that I that I uh, I could call my favorites for different reasons but I guess one of the ones that I I really um like a lot um is the uh, letter from the actor Louis Calhern to um written to his friends, uh, Leonard and Sylvia Lyons. Leonard Lyons was a columnist. Right. And um, it's, he's writing about um, what it's like, he, uh, writing a humorous letter about what it's like to, to live in Hollywood and work in the Hollywood studio system. At that point, he was working for MGM. And he writes about, um, he, so he's writing about Hollywood as a place, but he's also writing about working within the Hollywood system and it's just a very funny letter and so self-deprecating. I mean, he was a terrific actor, but he's sort of making fun of himself and making fun of the Hollywood studio system. And um, so that's one of my favorites. Well, that's uh, so. So I'm going to tell you my my two favorite. <laughs> OK, just so you know, I, I'm just bowled over by. And let me just go pluck it out of here real quick if I can. It's on. Uh, OK, I've got it. Um, it's. Cubby Broccoli to Harry Uh Saltzman. It's the shortest letter in the book. It's only Uh one line. And the whole letter is, 
Blumoff, whoever that is, reports New York did not care for Connery, feels we can do better. Now, that is yeah. just flat out marvelous. That's marvelous. I mean, one of the biggest superstars we've ever had in the history of movies and the biggest series we've ever had in the history of movies, the James Bond series, <laughs> one letter they were about to blow Sean Connery off of the picture. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's a great one. That was one that Rocky tracked down um, by contacting Eon Productions, yes. which is the, the company that that uh, owned by the Broccoli's that right. still you know, makes the James Bond films. Sure. They have their own archive, and they sent us a few things to look at, and that was one of them. And obviously, you know, when we saw that, we realized that would be a great thing to include in the book. Oh, I, I, I just, I just adore that. When I saw that, I just almost fell out of my chair. That's like, that, that's. It reminds me very much of the the, uh, the famous uh, screen test of Fred Astaire, which I can't quote, but I can paraphrase, and I think you know what I'm talking about, where mm-hmm. the the screen test of Fred Astaire says. Uh, dances a little, sings a bit, or whatever it says, and it's it's basically a pass on Fred Astaire. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I have I have seen that. Yeah, in a way, those it's interesting. Um, you know, uh, things like that telex um, about Sean Connery, and also the different telegrams that we have in the book. I guess those are the closest. Uh, that we have to um, the way we communicate today, they're a little bit more like tweets or mm-hmm. emails, I guess, yeah. than uh, than actual full-fledged letters. Um, so it does show that there's even there was even a, a sort of a form of communication at the time that was a little bit similar to what we do now, which is just something where you just want to get the information in there. It's not so much about crafting a beautiful letter, but just about sending the key information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, second favorite letter, because I, I love many of them, but, but the, the, my second favorite letter is the Tom Hanks to George Roy Hill before mm-hmm. Tom Hanks. He was just a boy, basically. Mm-hmm. And he writes a letter to George Roy Hill, who's, I, I think, forgotten today largely, but one of the best directors we've ever had. Um, and, and he's basically telling him that he should become a star and George Roy Hill should make him a star. I mean, it's essentially what the letter is. And how does that work out? Well, George Roy Hill doesn't make him a star, but Tom Hanks becomes one of the biggest stars ever. Th- that mm-hmm. that's just marvelous stuff. Uh, yeah, no, that's a, that's a wonderful letter. Uh, that's one that I um, I was familiar with from the Academy. Um, I think actually my husband, who um, cataloged the George Roy Hill papers, was the first person to come across that letter. I kind of rem- I remember when he found it and uh, took took it to to the library director to. Sh- uh, sort of say, hey, take a look at this. Um, so I remember when that happened many years ago, uh, and I'm so glad that we were able to include it in the book. And yeah, again, I think that's another one where the opportunity to actually see the letter in his handwriting on that lined paper yes. that we all used when we were in high school, yes. <laughs> um, I think that adds so much to it, much more than just reading the words to actually see what the letter looks like. I think it makes all the difference. And you can see how carefully he wrote it, and uh, and he comes up with his own word, bango, and, and <laughs> it's it, this is just marvelous, marvelous stuff. Um, uh, I, you know, I hope you do sell enough of these that justifies a, another version. Um, was there one eureka moment in this whole process was there or were there many were there was there a good eureka moment like we found something we really were looking for um i mean there's 
you know, we were lucky enough to find so many remarkable letters. Um, you know, as I said, some that I sort of knew about, but a lot that um, I wasn't expecting to find. I guess one that was sort of a eureka moment for me was the letter that I came across um, when I was at the uh, down in Texas at the Harry Ransom Center, mm-hmm. which is this you know amazing archive of um, of personal papers and correspondence and manuscripts um, at the University of Texas. And uh, I was going through the papers of uh, Myron Selznick, who was an agent, uh, and of course the brother of David O. Selznick. Right. And I came across this letter from Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and that was, a, that was sort of a eureka moment for me, because it's such a, such a charming letter, written at such an important moment in his life when he's moving from England to America to become a director to do his first film here, Rebecca. And um, it really just captures, I think, his personality. And I was very excited by that because I had worked with the Alfred Hitchcock papers, which are at the Academy. That was another collection I worked on. <laughs> I was very lucky. Uh, so I got to work on that when I was first at the Academy. And I remembered, um, and then over the years, you know, helped many, many. That's one of the most popular collections at the Academy, as you can imagine. And and worked with many many scholars and film historians who came in to look at that material. But mm-hmm. I remembered that there really weren't that many letters from Hitchcock in the collection. I think a lot of the personal ones, um, like with, between him and his wife and the family members, were probably kept by the family. Um, but in terms of of other kinds of letters, you just don't see that many from Hitchcock. Um, they tend to be very very brief the ones that I had seen, and um, I hadn't seen anything quite like this. I just think it really is uh, charming and reveals his personality. So I was very excited to um, to find that. And then um, I was able to, had met members of the family before, so I was able to get in touch with them and get permission to use the letter. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking about this letter uh, that was written in uh, 1939, to Daniel mm-hmm. Dariu, or he meant, he means Winkler. It's to Daniel Winkler. <laughs> That's right, and he's he's, he's uh, teasingly telling them to help him find a place to live, to live, to ride on their bicycle up to Bel Air, and all kinds of things. It, and um, as I mentioned in the in the caption that I wrote to go with it, the um, the I saw subsequent memos and letters about this, and they just loved it. They were so thrilled, and they talk about, I, I think I quote from it, something about we went around the office to show your letter to everyone and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I just thought it was so super charming and sort of revealed a side of his personality that you don't always see. Well, that's the, that's, and, that is the charm of it, is that you're seeing a side of Hitchcock that you would not even think that was there. That he mm-hmm. he's talking about his personal life and he needs a place to live and it's it sort of very brings him down to become more of a human than 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 the god that he's become. Right, exactly. And then you know, uh, I believe I found the photo that accompanies it at um, with PhotoFest uh, oh, in right? New York, and I just love that photo because it shows him and his family and um, uh, arriving in Los Angeles. So it just was a perfect fit. It, it it it's a marvelous picture. So yeah, it, it's I'm looking at it right now. It's a really fantastic picture. Well, Barbara, we've been talking for almost an hour, and um, we're gonna wind this show down. I just was curious if you have a good piece of advice or a tip uh, for those who might be interested in getting into the business of 
being a film historian or an archivist or or even a even a book writer as you've now become um do you have a a piece of advice or a tip that people could use um well i mean I, I guess this will sound um you know this is this is not very original, but I mean I think it's so important to be passionate about what you do and to really believe in what you're doing um you know even if it seems like a topic that that maybe not everyone would be interested in. Um, if you really believe in it and you can put the time in and do the research, I think it's possible to take any topic and make it interesting to other people um, if you have that commitment. And um, in terms of being an archivist, I mean, I was very lucky. I kind of was came into it um, through, the, through a background in film history and film studies. Um, nowadays, um, most archivists come out of um, library and information science programs. It's um, the the the, um, the field has become very professionalized, which is great. So, if someone wants to become an archivist, uh, they should explore um, those kinds of programs in order to to um, uh, you know to go get into that field. Um, but in terms of film history, you know, again, my other advice is just watch as many movies as you possibly oh, can. Oh, for sure. And read as much about it as you can and um, and try and, and go back and put yourself in the place, that, what we try to do with this book, try to go back and, and put yourself in the shoes of the people who were making the films and uh, see things through their eyes. I think that that's... Uh, that's not uh, advice I hear too often on this show, so it's uh, uncommon advice, which is very good. And uh, uh, I-, I couldn't agree with you more that we're what's happening with our diversification of the entertainment industry is that we're uh, we're losing people understanding the totality of the history of where this comes from. And uh, I see it in the students that I teach because I teach screenwriting here in Pittsburgh, and uh, I see it in the students when you mention very, very famous stars' names, and they look at you with a blank stare. They have no idea who you're talking about, and these are film students. So mm-hmm. I, I agree that that's a very good piece of advice, that you must uh, study the history of what, where it comes from. And what more pleasurable way to study anything would it be than to watch movies? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's a t- total joy. So uh, I, I agree. I think that's a very wise piece of advice. Barbara, this has been a terrific and fascinating hour, and I truly appreciate your coming on Storybeat today, and I wish you extremely well with this book. Oh, thank you so much. I uh, really enjoyed talking with you about it. It's, um, it's been very exciting to, uh, to connect with people um, over the letters that we were able to put in the book. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.